Luke chapter 1 is our sermon text for this morning, beginning in verse 57, page 1589 in your pew Bibles. These are not merely the words of men. This is God's word. It is inspired. It is our authority. So please give your attention to its reading. We read in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57, going to verse 80. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, if you are a person of few words, slow to speak, it tends to be easier to get people to regard what you say as important. The book of Proverbs brings this up a couple different times. If you are always quick to speak, always quick to offer your opinion on everything, people tend to regard what you say as less important. But if you're the kind of person who speaks after only carefully examining something, Carefully thinking about something, those around you will quickly learn that there is value in listening to what you have to say. So imagine then completely losing your ability to speak for nine months. Imagine, imagine having all that time to reflect and to think. What might be the first thing that you would say? This is the opportunity that's given to Zechariah in the text before us this morning. 
And within that nine-month time span, he has had a change of heart. Remember, the last time we heard him speak, he was filled with doubt. But now he expresses a full and a lively faith in God and in his promises. As we look at his response together, we see yet another Christmas song. Last week we looked at Mary's song, which is called the Magnificat. Together this morning we look at Zechariah's song, which is called the Benedictus, or Benediction, or Blessing. There are three themes that I'd like to point out for us within this passage this morning. First, we see faith-filled parents. Second, we see a God of promise. And lastly, we see a light from on high. Faith-filled parents, a God of promise, and a light from on high. So first then, faith-filled parents. This passage begins with a simple but a wonderful declaration. The child which was promised to Elizabeth and Zechariah has been born. Why is this so wonderful? Because this was prophesied by God. This was told to them that they would have this child. Many times in scripture it takes a long, long time for a prophecy to be fulfilled. But as soon as God had given this prophecy through the angel Gabriel, then Elizabeth conceives and now the child has been born. This child is a great source of joy and celebration, not only for Elizabeth and Zechariah, but for their friends and their relatives. Verse 58 tells us why. Why were they rejoicing? Because the Lord had shown her this great mercy. Because the Lord had shown her this great mercy. See, everyone was recognizing that this kind of blessing could only have come from the hand of God. They say it was God who has done this, and so they praise God for this blessing. It has come from the Lord. But this has also made everyone a little bit overzealous in the process of naming the child, right? In our text, it seems like the people who are gathered there already have an idea as to what this child is to be called. They would have named him Zechariah after his father, as it says in verse 59. It probably would have been most common at this time for parents to name their firstborn son after the child's paternal grandfather, after the father's father. So it could be that the friends and the relatives who are gathered together today see this as such a clear expression of the Lord's mercy that they say he should be named Zechariah after his father because this is a a clear blessing from the Lord. Or... Perhaps they're having a little bit of fun with Zechariah, right? Since they named children typically after the child's grandfather, maybe the friends and the relatives are saying to Zechariah, well, you're as old as the child's grandfather anyways. Why don't you just name him after yourself? Either way, it seems as if they're kind of impeding upon the process a little bit. They think that the child should be named Zechariah. Now, for Dutch people... I think we have uh, a few Dutch folks here this morning, don't we? Dutch people can relate to this because naming children after relatives has been an extremely important tradition for the Dutch. The pattern would go something like this. The usual pattern was first son named after the father's father, same thing. Second son named after the mother's father. Third son named after the father's paternal grandfather. Fourth son named after the mother's paternal grandfather. Fifth son, named after the father's maternal grandfather. Sixth son, named after the mother's maternal grandfather. This is quite the established pattern. 
one thing that this does is it creates a lot of name repetition, doesn't it? Uh, as, as you name more and more people after a certain group of folks, you, you have all of these, this close cluster of name repetition within a family. So, for instance, what would happen in our Dutch Reformed community if both the father and the mother's dads had the same name? What do you do with your first two sons? Well, that's kind of a silly question. You name them both the same name, right? So let's say that both the grandfathers were named Jan, one of the Dutch versions of John. The first one, the older, would be called Jan de Oud. John the older, the second one would be called Jan de Young, the younger. Now I have heard stories, I'm Norwegian, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a total outsider. I have, no, I have no part in this, right? I've heard stories that if anyone wanted to break this pattern, even within the last 100 years, there were certain communities where people had to get permission from their consistory to do so. If you wanted to break this pattern of name, naming after grandfathers and great-grandfathers, you'd have to get permission from the consistory. Of course, we, we here at, in South Holland, we're a, a fairly liberal and progressive consistory. We won't a- demand that you ask permission. We'll just fine you afterwards if you break this pattern, right? But the point is, is that this is an important tradition. It was an important tradition. It was an important tradition also in the Israelite community. God's faithfulness would be attested through naming children after their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their relatives. It was a way of saying, God has been faithful to us and to our family and to our people. Just as God promised that he would bring forth a savior from our nation, we are proclaiming our trust in that promise by saying that God has been faithful to our family. And we believe that just as he was faithful to previous generations, He will be faithful to future generations. But Elizabeth and Zechariah do what? They break this established pattern, don't they? Without hesitation or wavering, they affirm that this child will be named John. Elizabeth gives this declaration first, right? Because she is able to speak. Her announcement is puzzling to those who are there, so they turn to Zechariah. Perhaps Zechariah will be the voice of reason. Perhaps he will be the one who has sense to give this child a name that is already in the family. Zechariah, who has been unable to speak for the last nine months, writes the name of the boy on his writing tablet. Kids, this isn't an iPad or Microsoft Surface. It's just something that they use to write on. So they didn't have those back then. So Zechariah says the child is to be named John. John. This must have been a temptation for Zechariah, you would think, right? Now that he has his son, now that he has a child that he never had before, wouldn't it be a temptation to give this child a family name? God's already given you the child. Surely he won't take it away. Just give him the name that you would like to give him. But no, he obeys God. He's had nine months to ponder, think, and pray in silence. Nine months ago, he was doubtful that this could happen. Remember, he would say, God, how are you going to bring this about? We're, We're old and we're barren. If he would have read his Bible, he would have known that this is the exact kind of thing that God can do. He gave a child to Abraham and to Sarah in their old age. 
But now, after nine months, he has faith. Both he and Elizabeth believe that this child has been set apart to do great and mighty things for God's people. Elizabeth has believed all along. And now we see Zechariah exercising a full and a vibrant faith. He's not yet been able to voice his praise for God. And he is now given that opportunity. We've interacted with him a lot so far in this gospel, but he has not had the chance to praise or to thank or to worship God. And so as soon as he obeys God in naming this child John, his tongue is loosed. His ability to speak is restored, and what he does is he worships the God of promise. He worships the God of promise. His song focuses on the fact that God fulfills and keeps his promises. This is a remarkable turn in Zechariah's faith. A remarkable turn. He is resting in the God who is gracious. Remember the name of his son, John. John, the name means Yahweh is gracious. So Zechariah rejoices and praises God for his undeserved favor. His song begins by saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The Latin word for blessed is Benedictus, and that is what this song is famously titled, Zechariah's Benedictus. It is his word of blessing towards God. At the end of our worship services, we receive a benediction, which is God's blessing towards us. There's a little bit different shade of meaning. When we bless God, we worship and affirm all that he says that he is in our hearts and in our lives. We do our best to give God the praise and the adoration that he deserves, In God's benediction towards us, he gives us this efficacious blessing, this powerful word of assurance that he will be with us and never forsake us. But Zechariah gives God praise in this benediction that ascends to heaven. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, as it says in verse 67, because what he is saying is not only a song of praise, but a prophecy as well. You could call this a hinge prophecy because... Zechariah speaks of the ways in which the prophecies have already been fulfilled, that God promised that this child would would come, would be born. And then he also speaks of future things to come. He reaffirms what Gabriel has said about what this child will be, who this child will be. Luke chapter 1, verse 14, the angel Gabriel has said that this child will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then what does Zechariah say? In verse 76, he says this, You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. This child is a fulfillment of the Lord's promises. This child will play a role in God fulfilling the promise that he made to David. Through this child, God will fulfill the promise to raise up one from the house of David. But Zechariah already recognizes that this child, will, he, he will be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. He will be the one who paves the way. He is not himself the descendant of David. That is how he is invoking the promise that is made to David. 
He invokes not only the King David, but yet another famous recipient of a promise, Abraham. This is where the connections become really fascinating. Zechariah and Elizabeth both have been cast in the mold of Abraham and Sarah in the scriptures. An older and barren couple that is blessed with a child late in in life. A child of promise who will be a sign of God's faithfulness to his people. Of course, just like Abraham, Zechariah has questioned God. Remember in Genesis when God affirms once again that he will give them a child. Abraham says, surely you can't be serious, God. I'm 100 and my wife is 90. You're not going to give us a child this late in life. And Abraham actually points to Ishmael. He says, here, I have a son. Make him the child of promise. Be reasonable, God. But God is to bring about the fulfillment the way that he sees fit. And then, of course, just as all those who heard of the birth of John rejoiced with Elizabeth, So all those who heard of Sarah having a baby rejoiced along with her. Abraham was the one who received the promise of the sign of circumcision. And in today's passage, this is exactly the context where Zechariah gives this song of praise. They are gathered together for the circumcision of John. And so we have this fascinating connection where they're gathered together to celebrate and to proclaim God's promises to his people. And then in Zechariah's song, he is proclaiming that in this child, God is bringing about the fulfillment of the promises that are made to Abraham. What was circumcision? In Genesis chapter 17, we read this. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It was a sign of the covenant. It was a way to remember the fact that God had made these promises to his people. It was a way to declare God's promises. It was a way to claim God's promises. Each time a child was circumcised, God declared his promise to them. And it was as if he was saying to all his people, remember, remember what I said to Abraham, your father. Believe in what I have said to Abraham, our father. Isn't it so wonderfully fitting that Zechariah proclaims the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham within this child's circumcision? One of the only times since God's people have been doing this, that there is a tangible fulfillment of that promise exactly at the time it's going on. Beloved, this is why baptism, the new covenant sign of the covenant between God and his people, is so special. Because whether we baptize a child who has been born into or brought into the church through their family, or we baptize a convert who has come into the church later in life, baptism signifies these things. It's a sign of God's promises. It's a way to remind ourselves that God has promised that if you look to Jesus Christ, you will be saved. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's a way to declare God's promises. It's a way that God declares his promises to us. For the one who receives baptism, they can be assured that as they look to Christ, they will be saved. But it's not just for the person that receives baptism. It's for everyone who is gathered together, just as everyone was gathered together for the circumcision of John. As all those who are gathered together to see baptism take place, we all can be reminded 
that God says to all of us, here is the gospel. Here are the promises of God. Cling to Christ and you will be saved. This happens not only as we see baptism or as we gather around the Lord's table, but each time we gather together to hear the gospel announced and to hear God's word taught. The call of the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is to each week cling to the truth of the gospel. That is where the Christian life begins. To come and to hear the assurance that you cannot save yourself, that it's not what you do, It's what Christ has done for you. That is the assurance of the Christian life. And the call upon us is to remain faithful and believing in this message day after day and week after week. So that all of us can leave this world with the sweet name of Jesus on our lips. That is the call of the Christian life. Because we worship, just as Zechariah is doing in this passage, we worship the God of promise. And we believe his promises unto us. He is a friend who keeps his promises. You know, each time, if you've ever had the experience of a friend who keeps his promises over the course of many, many years, and you see how much that friend cares for you, this is a God who keeps his promises over the course of thousands of years. And the ultimate fulfillment of his promise is this light from on high, this light from heaven. And that's our last main point as we look at the scripture together this morning. Look at verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. We see in this statement that the Savior who is to come, the one who is to follow this young John, It looks to be that he is one who comes up from the earth. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. There is an allusion in this verse to Judges chapter 3 verse 9, which says that God raised up a savior in the house of Israel. And that's an allusion back to one of the judges in the Old Testament. It's alluding back to Othniel. He was a judge of Israel and a savior because he went out to war And he defeated the king of Mesopotamia. This is what a savior would have looked like in Old Testament Israel. He was to be one who would come and vanquish the enemies of God. Look at verse 71. He will give us salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And yet Zechariah in this beautiful way weaves together this mystery about the Messiah. Because he is one who does not just rise from the earth as a horn of salvation, as a strong man who comes up from the earth, but he will be a rising of the sun that comes down to the world from heaven. In verse 78, he is a rising of the sun that comes to the world from heaven. And it's a fascinating way in the midst of Zechariah's song where he weaves these two things about the Messiah together. One who vanquishes God's enemies, but one who is a light from heaven. And this is why he does it. Because the Messiah had to come to vanquish and to defeat God's enemies. But the greatest enemy of God was found within the hearts of the Israelites. And within our hearts as well. 
that which stands most opposed to God and his ways is the sin and the wickedness that dwells within human hearts. That which separates us from God from the time we are conceived, that which rightfully puts all of us guilty before God, that which puts all of us worthy of the wrath of God. But the Messiah, Jesus, the one who came after this young child, John, he came to vanquish this greatest of all enemies. He came to defeat our sin. This highlights the mystery of the two comings of our Savior, Jesus Christ. His first coming was not on a white horse with a mighty sword, with an army in his train. His first coming was in grace, so that he might look to all who, who were his own and tell them that the greatest enemy of all, the guilt that lies within each human heart, is vanquished in him. His first coming was in grace, so that his witnesses could go forth to the Midianites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, you and me, and, and, and say that grace can be found in this Savior, Jesus Christ. He was not to be this Old Testament judge who came first to defeat all the enemies of God within Canaan. He came first in grace. He came once in grace, brothers and sisters, but he will come again in judgment. And so the message of the blessedness of salvation is to look to this God of promise while he may be found to cling to the message of the gospel, to trust in the forgiveness of our sins. This is who our Savior is. Not only a horn of salvation coming up from the earth, but a light that shines in the darkness, that came down from heaven, who came first in grace to offer salvation to all, so that he may be found before he comes again in judgment. For it is in him and with him that there is true peace. Jesus Christ offers a peace that is not a, a fake peace from cultural Christmas, the kind of peace that you hear about on TV specials. He's not false or temporary peace in between wars and terrorist attacks. He gives us peace with God, peace in heaven. There's a poet named Henry Vaughan who describes this peace. How shocking it is to think that he came, that Christ came from heaven and now lives in heaven for us. And I'll read this then as we close this morning. He writes this poem as, as if to his own soul to look to Christ. My soul, there is a country far beyond the stars where stands a winged sentry all skillful in the wars. There, above noise and danger, sweet peace sits crowned with smiles, and one born in a manger commands the beauteous files. He is your gracious friend, and O oh, my soul awake, did in pure love descend to die here for your sake. If you can get but thither, there grows the flower of peace, the rose that cannot wither your fortress and your ease. Leave then your foolish ranges, for none other can secure but the one who never changes, your God, your life, your cure. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. True peace coming down from heaven, a light shining in the darkness. Look to him in faith this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
we praise you and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word, Father. Keep us faithful to it, faithful to your gospel always, eager to worship and to praise you out of the joyfulness of our hearts that comes from being made right with you by the work of your Son. We praise you this morning in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. We respond together in song by singing.